Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, y'all, I know you want to get to the podcast, but hear me out. If you are from the Dallas Opera Network platform, if you are from the Sirius XM platform, you need to get our show onto your airwaves. And this, my ad, new, this ad is for you specifically. <laughs> a new method in targeted advertisements coming to you directly from George Cedarquist's brain. I would love I'm, this show to be available at Target. I think that's what you meant. I mean, Opera Box Score has everything. You want to talk like about uh, uh, important singers, composers, works of art. Well, you can just look at any one of our Hall of Fame segments where we do an in-depth analysis of various works, uh, of various composers and singers. Uh, or you can look to our uh, Spring Training for Your Ears segments where we talk about specific operas and really do deep dives and deep analysis. Like in a Frau fun or and the, the way. opera everybody's been trying to but learn about. <laughs> now that, yeah. Yeah. But we're not just we're not just looking backwards, everyone. We have one third of our show every week dedicated to bringing you the hottest opera takes about what's going on in the current events. And uh, we were pretty focused on a lot of stories that have become popular right now before they were cool. So we're also your one stop shop for countertenors. We've had Nicholas Tamanya, we've had Justin Davies, we've had Anthony Roth Costanzo, we've had Justin Kim. If they're a countertenor, we probably have had them as a guest on our show. But if you're a countertenor who hasn't been on our show yet, there is room for you too. Last but not least, you know that we love sports on this show as well. If you've listened to sports on Sirius XM, or of course, if you're in Dallas, we know that you love football more than you love opera, and we know there is no football coming this fall. So you might as well check us out. Enjoy the show. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. From a closet in Rogers Park on the far north side of Chicago, I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by co-hosts Oliver Camacho and Ashley Hardgrave, all jammed into the same closet. <laughs> all right, tonight, Oliver goes inside the huddle with a pioneering Cuban-American composer and conductor, Odaline de la Martinez. Find out how Maestra Martinez has been doing the work of increasing the diversity of those composers whose work gets performed and recorded for decades. Plus, Maestra Martinez tells us how Dame Ethel Smythe got into good trouble and conducted a chorus from prison. Then we dip into our listener mailbag for a double header on Strauss and Beverly Sills. We've got hot takes and questionable advice, so don't miss that. And in the two-minute drill, Lizette Oropesa gets an encore, and Andrea Bocelli has a bad take on coronavirus lockdown. So much to look forward to, but none of it is sports. Uh, Oliver Camacho, how have you been coping without sports? <laughs> Actually, I have some uh, sports talk, but I want to save it for good call at the end of the episode. So put a pin in that. Oh, and intriguing. Our, you know, our devoted listeners will just just be dying to get to that part of the episode. So you got to take your medicine first and listen to the whole thing. You can't rush to good call, bad call. I know you guys always do that. So, Ashley, uh, what are you hanging on to for uh, the final moments of the episode, the <laughs> clickbait that we're going to provide for our listeners here at the beginning of the show? 
Right now, it's the Chicago White Sox. Go Sox! They beat the Royals this weekend. Uh, as of recording time right now, they are leading the Brewers 2-1. to one, Although this episode is going to drop two days after that uh, game is over with. So hopefully they won again. Yay, go Sox! <laughs> Ashley, you've told them too much. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. This week, I'm truly privileged to be able to speak to Maestra Odaline de la Martinez, who joined me on Zoom from London. I have to confess that I just learned of her career recently, and I'm embarrassed that I had not been following it up till now. That will change. She has been doing the work of amplifying the voices of female composers and composers of color for literally decades through her own conducting, through her programming, but also through founding an organization, an ensemble that performs this music, which eventually led to the creation of a record label that records this music. This is now her moment. She is a pioneer. At the end of this interview, we will hear a sample of her opera, The Slave Opera Trilogy, the first part, which is called Imoinda. The cast includes, in the title role, Mana Kinjoi, and in the other role, you'll hear as the character Oko, Christopher Lilly. And this was recorded uh, in 2015 through a grant from Opera America. And the performers are part of Opera Ebony. But I wanted to begin the interview asking Maestro Martinez what it feels like to be acknowledged as a pioneer in this movement that we're having right now. It's funny because one of the things about being a pioneer is that when people finally catch up with you, you're no longer a pioneer. <laughs> However you will have built a whole, a whole body of work. And that's what's so important. Because I, for me, it's really important to promote women composers because they have been in their prime at different periods in musical history and they have been recognized in different periods of musical history. But then when those little sine waves go down again, it's over. And one of the things that I think is really important for the future is that it's been such hard work to find some of the historical women composers that I believe it's important to create an archival recordings, in my case, an archival recordings of those composers, when in a hundred years, women have been forgotten again. I hope not, but there's a chance of it. People will be able to find those archives and not actually have to do the massive amount of research that we've been doing for the last 20, 30 years, trying to find these great women. You get my point. Yeah, and I mean, I was teaching music history um, briefly at the high school level, and there's no text right now that, you know, highlights the minority composers and the women composers, and maybe they're mentioned as a side note, you know. But you listen to music of, like, Clara Schumann, who is, you know, getting a... She's always been, you know, part of the mainstream, but now even more so, people are like, oh, yeah, Clara Schumann, you know. And it's great music. And, like, it's so many different uh, mediums that she composed in. And to think that, you know, she was overshadowed, you know, for so long. And then Fanny Mendelssohn. Like, you know, these are the people, the names that we know. But then there are people that I'm just discovering. Very important ones. Very important ones. Yes. Yeah. But but there's no history of them. And there's no, you have to, like, really dig really hard to find their biographies and how, you know, the recordings are not that, you know, deep, like we find, you know, Felix Mendelssohn recordings, everybody records the violin concerto, you know, but we have maybe one or two recordings of uh, these other composers. Um, and Fanny, Yes, Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel. But you know that some of the um, 
pieces like Songs Without Words that Felix was attributed to have written were actually written by Fanny. Hmm. I don't know if you know that. And you also know that whenever he was a conductor as well, whenever he was conducting his music, Fanny would come along and rehearse it and have it ready for little brother to come and conduct. It's a different world altogether. And of course, many times when she tried to go outside of the house to perform, the family would not allow it. And when she tried to get her music published, Felix did not want it to be published. And it's only years later when the, you know, he's, uh, she was married to somebody called Hensel, mm -hmm. who was the court artist. He was a court visual artist. And he and, and his children, with her, obviously, actually started publishing her music. And you could get some of the really old publications, but it's hard to find. And there's a whole wing, I believe, um, of the Berlin State uh, Library. There's a whole wing dedicated to the Mendelssohn. And in it, you will find some of Fanny Mendelssohn's music, but you have to look really hard. Yeah, and I just read recently that they used to have like these great parties, you know, where they people would like salons where people come to their house and they would like look at art and listen to her music. It's like I want to go back to that time. That sounds like so much fun. And she started it. She started that whole idea of coming to listen to chamber music. She was one of the first people all together. And now, of course, we have chamber music societies. Mm -hmm. And she started the idea because they wouldn't let her out of the house. Well, obviously, she could go out of the house, but they wouldn't let her out of the house to perform. She could only perform at home. Well, getting back to you, um, oh, I, thank you. <laughs> I just want to say, like, you come off at least your online personality as being very generous and very warm. And I Thanks. know that that is maybe that's just your natural personality or maybe that's something that you work on. But there had to it's have Cuban genes. Yeah. Cuban genes. <laughs> <laughs> but there had to have been maybe there hasn't. But I feel like there had to have been some point in your life where you were confronted with sexism and maybe even racism because you're Latina uh, sure. and deciding that, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make these changes. I'm going to be the change I want to see in this business. And if you could just share, I mean, now you have sure. all this, you know, you have institutions behind you right now, but it didn't start that way. So if you could, if you could go back a little bit and, and tell us how you sure. got to where you are. Well, I was at the Royal Academy of Music and uh, we were in a class called Contemporary Music. And it was very, very clear from the beginning. I don't know how much time I have, but <laughs> we realized that a lot of people would get a grant to have their music performed, say a living composer, and a record label would do it. And the next thing you know, they would disappear. And so we decided a friend, a flute friend, who was also studying at the Academy and myself, Ingrid Culliford, who now lives in New Zealand, we decided to form a group who would really perform composers who we thought were first class but neglected. <clears throat> and that's how I started. I started first the pianist of the Ensemble Lontano, and then I started conducting. And then what happened, and we did, we performed a lot of American composers who were well-known in America, but completely unknown here, or people who were excellent composers from here who were ignored. So we started performing these composers, and the BBC noticed us. So one of the producers in the BB came to our concerts and they loved it. So they invited us to record. So before we even left the Royal Academy of Music, before we graduated from conservatory, we were already recording for the BBC. <clears throat> and then at one time, when I was visiting one of the many producers who did programs, I got a phone call at the producers. They were trying to get a hold of me. This conductor of, of, the, of the Belfast uh, Orchestra has become ill last minute and we can't get anybody to come. 
are you free? I said, sure, sure, I'm free, absolutely. So it was a Friday. Literally, I spent all weekend learning the repertoire. And when I got to Belfast, because it was a Belfast orchestra, the BBC had at the time five or six orchestras. And when I got there, all I could do was eat sandwiches and study, eat sandwiches and study. So in a week, we rehearsed and recorded two or three programs that went out. And that was the beginning of my career as an orchestra conductor. Then people who actually liked it invited me here and there and here and there. And eventually I really traveled all over the world, but it was all an accident, literally. Hmm. <laughs> so you have been, you know, your career is mostly now in the UK, but you're Cuban. No, all over, all over. But you're based in London. I live, I've lived in London since I came to study here, yes. But I am an American by choice. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Not by birth, by choice. Well, so That's you have important. you have an idea of the of what's happening here in the states with all the oh. arts organizations suddenly starting to realize that they have uh, not really lived up to what they say they're doing in terms of diversity and inclusion, and now people are really trying to you know move in this direction with purpose. How mm. what, what is the difference in the UK? How do you feel th- these uh, initiatives are going over there? And very little difference. Yeah, very little difference. I mean, if you look, it's an opera. This is an opera program. You look at the Royal Opera House here; they hardly ever did anything by a minority. I mean, they built a theater in the basement called the Limbury Theater, not even the main stage, but the Limbury Theater, and they started commissioning little pieces by black British composers just here and there. And they were done. So as far as they were concerned, they were performing minority music, but they weren't. They were putting it in the basement. The Liberty Theater is a very nice theater. Uh, In my opinion, it's very dry. They say they've changed it. And so that's how they did it. You get over it by doing community work. You see what I mean? Mm. And then you can say you perform minority composers and still it's just community work. The big stage doesn't get it. And that's what we should go for, the big stage. Then finally, English National Opera, called ENO, which is an opera company that does everything in English, decided to do Porgy and Bess. And quite a few opera companies in Europe and the Met picked it up. And it was the same soloist. But it's still, you know, it's not a black composer, is it? Or it's not a minority composer. Yeah. It's George Gershwin. Yeah. And today, and of course, I've been to a lot of uh, uh, performances where black singers in this country sing. When I'm, I go to America all the time as well, because I have a... I have an apartment in New Orleans, and I was raised in New Orleans. So I, I say my soul, my my soulish home is New Orleans. <laughs> New Orleans, as I say, New Orleans. <laughs> and so I keep going back. So, but you know, ENO does uh, Porgy and Bess, and they go all over. So they think that's their quota for black musicians. Yep. But they don't actually do work by minority composers. They just don't. And they once in a while will do something by a woman composer. That is true. I mean, the Met. The first woman composer performed in America was at the Met, and it was Dame Ethel Smyth. She wasn't even American. You know, it's a British composer, wonderful composer, long dead, wonderful composer at many levels. But, you know, and it was almost 100 years or maybe less before another woman composer was performed at the Met, and she wasn't a woman. She was a Finnish composer. I mean, she was a woman, but she wasn't American. She was a Finnish composer. So the Met is really behind. The Royal Opera House is really behind the, the Royal Opera House did perform De Methyl's Mind years after some of those pieces were performed in the continent, but they did perform her. So I'm glad you brought up Dame Ethel Smythe because I feel like you you somehow align with her and you understand this I composer do. and you really you recorded her works and you conducted the records. 
And I think a lot of people maybe don't know, you know, her history, but uh, she was a suffragist. Amazing. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk to us a little bit about maybe some of the things we might not know that we'd be surprised to learn about Dame Ethel Smythe? Well, Ethel Smythe was born in the middle of the 19th century, something like 1850-something, in the middle of the Victorian period. And in those, in those ages, women didn't go around to become composers. Mm-hmm. So she had to fight her father, who was a general. Hmm. And, you know, if you're a general, you want your daughters to obey you. But she fought her way and decided that she wanted to study composition. So she went to Liège, not Liège, Leipzig, Leipzig. got it right. She went to Leipzig to study at the conservatory. She lasted one year in the conservatory because she didn't like it. She studied privately and she studied with somebody who actually connected her, who, you know, who actually connected her to someone who would be her librettist years later, Henry Brewster. She wrote operas and her first opera, her first three operas, actually, the first two were in German and their Wald which was the second one, was actually the one that was premiered at the Met. There's her third opera was The Wreckers, and that was actually in French originally, and then German, and then translated into English. And it was eventually done in London, um, very well received, but it was years ago. I mean, she's got a wonderful story, for example. It was going to be done, I believe, in Leipzig, and the guy who was directing it had so little understanding that he started removing bits of Act 2, bits of Act 3, and she was so annoyed that after the premiere in Leipzig, she went downstairs to where the orchestra was, stole all the music and the score, and went on to Prague, where the next performance was going to be. You can imagine what a scandal that was. That's why it took so long for her music to be performed at the Royal Opera House for the records, because they couldn't believe that anybody would dare to stand up against an opera company, take her music away, to stop the performance. Can you imagine what a scandal it was? Can you imagine? Anyway, somewhere at the beginning of the 20th, of the 19th, of the 19th, the 1900s, the 20th century, she became aware of Emmeline Pankhurst, who was really the leader of the suffragettes. And she decided that she could give up two years of her life to join the suffragettes. And she was aligned with uh, Emmeline Pankhurst, 1912, 1913. <clears throat> they did raids on parliament outside of parliament they did raids they decided in order to get a voice they would get stones and march in front of some of those houses the prime minister and the various different ministers they would throw stones to break the windows to try and get attention and eventually they ended up in jail and one of the best stories about Smythe, and this is not even saying she wrote six operas but even not even getting to her fourth opera one of the stories about her she was actually in jail and the suffragettes were downstairs marching and she was up where up somewhere somewhere at the top of the jail actually looking out the window with a toothbrush and she started conducting her very famous march of the women which became <laughs> the march for the women suffragists for many many years and so it goes she was a character she was a strong personality she was a wonderful composer like i said she wrote six operas she actually was a networker you know, they used the day networker. She was a networker way back when, <laughs> the beginning of the, of the 20th century. She would look up the daughter of so-and-so or Lord this and that or Lady this and that or Princess this and that and get them to give her money to put on her opera, to put on, her, for example, her mass or her opera. It's incredible. And she got to be very good friends. I mean, she being the daughter of a general, in those days, generals could only come from the upper class. But if you met Smythe, you never thought she was from the upper class. She wore the same old clothes all the time, tweeds, yeah. and this little hat. Yeah. And uh, 
And she just did like everybody else. She had to promote her music. You can't just sit there and write music and, and expect it to be done. And she was quite a character. During World War II, I was, no, during World War I, she actually went to work with the Red Cross and she was involved in the ambulances, helping people. She actually died in 1944 before the war ended. So um, it's part of the reason why her music is neglected because in 1940, 1939, when she heard about the Nazis and she wanted to do something, her music, by the way, was published in Vienna by Universal. But when in 1939, Vienna and Berlin were so supporting uh, the Nazis, she decided to take all her music away because she, she didn't want to have anything to do with them. So she took the music away. And of course, she died in 44. So she never could take the music back to Universal. As a result, Universals didn't publish her. They were her agents. So her music suffered greatly, greatly. So it's only when I started, literally, I may take the credit, I started digging up her music. Um, first, her overture for Antony and Cleopatra, then her serenade in D, which I recorded, then the records, which were done in the proms. And then later on, I just recorded in the last few years, Bosun's Maid, which followed her years as a, as a suffragette. And so the theme is also of a very, very strong woman who stands up against men who, in, who were pictured as not being very bright. <laughs> and then, of course, after that, Fed Gallant. And then after that, Antoine Cordial, which I haven't recorded yet because we haven't found the score. We've just found the piano vocal version. But she was something. And so when these recordings have come out, the, the uh, reviews have been brilliant. People have been buying them. And for the first time now, Ethel Smythe, after dying, 80-something years of age in 1944, has come back again. And I feel, if I may say so humbly, a little bit responsible for making her name known again. Take the credit. So there you are. <laughs> well, I live in England. You know, in, in England, if you behave like an American, say, I did it, yeah. they push you away, so you have to be really careful. <laughs> no, I think that's fantastic. And I, I'm going to go seek out Thank all you. of those recordings and see if I can get them played at my other job. But um, we're talking about... Um, promoting, you know, minority composers and um, being attentive to be gender equal. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you started uh, Lontano. Uh, yes. Can you talk to us about Lontano and some of the work you do with Lontano? I basically uh, record with them. They formed a record label in 92, but we started in 76. And like I said, we started promoting the work of really good composers who were little known. I realized I realized that I was being discriminated against women without realizing it. You know, oh, another woman composer. So I started promoting the work of women. After all, I'm a woman and I'm a composer and conductor. I mean, sometimes you do things without even knowing. Once I had this awareness, I started promoting the work of women. I started balancing concerts always 50-50. Not always, but really try 50-50. And then in 2006, I formed the London Festival of American Music which has always been 50-50. And I started promoting a lot of um, uh, African-American composers, for example, in the one that's coming next year in March, and we hope that COVID will be gone by then, we're doing Florence Price. We're doing a concert which is called um, Harlem Renaissance, okay. Renaissance, as they say in England. And we're performing <laughs> all the, you know, during the 1920s and into the 30s. And before that, a lot of African-American people went to New York and some of them to Chicago. And you had... Langston Hughes, 
who's a writer, obviously, you had um, visual artists, you had musicians, they all moved to New York, a lot of them running away from the South because there was a lot of violence and there was a lot of lynching. Hmm. So they all got together and they formed really the golden period of, at the period, and hopefully there will be another one soon. I call it the first golden period of African-American culture. And amongst them was Florence Price, who actually had lived in Little Rock for many years and had married a lawyer from there. But things got really bad in, in Little Rock, so she moved. And uh, one of several, and we're doing a whole concert. We've got an African, Nigerian, British composer, uh, a pianist, who's coming to do that recital, you know, Harlem Renaissance. Renaissance. And she's going to be performing uh, some pieces of um, Florence Price that haven't been heard. She's got something called her uh, Fantasy Negre, Mm-hmm. There are four black fantasies. And the fourth one, they thought it was lost. She found it. She went to a library, Little Rock, a main library, hmm. and found, you know. And um, back to this Harlem uh, Renaissance, it began what they called Negritude. I don't know if you know that, which went on to Cuba. One of the biggest Cuban poets, Nicolas Guillén. I'm just, I'm in the middle of setting four Afro-Cuban poems. Nicolas Guillén knew Langston Hughes, and they formed Negritude, which became popular in uh, France, in America, in, in a lot of the Caribbean, and it became a whole movement of bringing about African culture, not just African-American, Afro-Cuban, and the whole of the West Indies, you have to say. It's a mixed culture. And so it was a big, big movement. Anyway, let's get back to music if you want. No, but I, okay, I need to put a pin in that because... You have these operas, the uh, Slavery Trilogy, and I, yes. I want to just talk about that in a moment, but I also, before we leave the topic of England and your work over there, um, you know, you have a, one of your employers is the BBC, which yes. is, you know, so many legendary conductors and recordings have come out of the music from the BBC, can you talk about what it's like to work with that organization, to be affiliated with them? And do you have any influence over the type? Uh, I know that orchestras don't have a, you know, a lot of attrition, but do you have any influence in bringing on more diversity uh, onto, into the ranks of the orchestra or in the programming? I hear you. Well, as a woman, they gave me, I was the first woman to conduct a whole prom. The BBC proms had been going for 100 years and there had not been a woman. And I was age 32 and they actually had me do their first, my first prom. I was the first woman to conduct a, a, a complete prom, you know, and so that was major. I will say that the BBC is in many levels. Mm-hmm. As far as programs, really it's the producers who lead them. Mm. And the producers in general are very open, uh, incredibly open. And so with the orchestras, they never queried my programs. The issues when I began conducting was often with the players. In those days, there weren't as many women, I mean, women playing in the orchestras. And I have experience. I remember conducting one of the major BBC orchestras, and some guy in the back of the cello said, "I'm not going to be told what to do by a woman. What is she doing here?" That was a major early days, early days of women conductors. Another time, I was conducting at another major BBC orchestra, and I was coming back from break, and I found this book on my desk, the conductor's desk, and it was about getting muscular. It was unbelievable how you could do exercises to become more muscular, like men. And, uh, you know, the sort of stuff that they wouldn't do to men, Mm -hmm. but they got away with doing it with women. I mean, it was just, things have changed. 
Now there's lots of women playing in the orchestras, all the orchestras. I mean, the London Symphony Orchestra, probably the best known of all the orchestras in this country, called the LSO. In 1972, which I just, just arrived in England, there were no women in the orchestras. Hmm. And I remember doing research in the 1980s, sending, with help of the Arts Council of Great Britain, little uh, questionnaires. And most orchestras had very few women. The story has changed. I think the Berlin field still has only one woman, I believe. Hmm. I think she was a clarinetist. And in many orchestras, it was only the harpist. Because hmm. for a long time, it was only women harps. <laughs> now we have men harpists, of course, some very famous ones. But, and so it went. So what can I say? And yet the producers themselves were very supportive. They liked my programs. At the moment, <clears throat> I'm trying to offer some programs uh, looking at women composers all over the world. Because a lot of these radio companies, what are, are called Eurocentric, they they do women composers, but they mostly perform women composers that they know about from Europe or from America. They'll mm. do Florence Price. They've recorded. Uh, they've, uh, you know, they play radio. What they call, they have needle licenses, which means they're entitled to play X amount of music from a CD. So they'll bring CDs and play them, and so the story is changing. But I'm trying to also change it so it's no longer Eurocentric. So they look at composers all over the world. And I've offered a program about looking at composers from everywhere. You name it, Australia, Mexico, Latin America, you name it, Asia. There's quite a few Asian composers, Chinese, Japanese. And I'm hoping they will accept it. I think they will, but we'll see. I'll let you know if anything happens, <laughs> if anything comes of it. However, not just BBC. Earlier this year in January, I co-curated uh, with Juilliard a program of women composers from all over the world, and it was a hit. It was a hit. We had a one major page in the New York Times featuring the festival. We had really well-attended concerts. I mean, they were free. All you had to do was book your, your ticket. We had people from everywhere coming to hear the concerts, and it was great because we curated, um, I co-curated, uh, a program, you know, programs, a whole week of concerts with women f all the time and lots of African-American women's. <laughs> you have to come and do that in they Chicago. Were... Sorry? You have to come and bring that program to Chicago. Well, you know, they recorded the programs. If you could get them to give you permission, it was all made by, by students. Okay. It was chamber music concerts and at the end, one major orchestra concert. Uh, yes. I'm trying to remember what the program is. I can easily find out for you. But um, there was everything. And you found that a lot of the players were not necessarily white Americans. They were Asian Americans, Latin Americans. They were everything, African Americans, you name it. It was really nice to see that. So the musicians are there. They're coming from the forefront. Now we need to get the women composers there coming to the forefront. And, of course, the minority composers. Yeah. Well, so as I was saying at the top of this interview, um, the work you've been doing your whole career seems to perfectly align with the cultural moment that we're in right now. And Thank you. in the mid-aughts, like in 2015, I believe it was 2014, you, uh, you began the Slavery Opera, Opera Trilogy? Yeah, my librettist is Joan Arim Ado, who actually is from Barbados. So it's really interesting. She found this story by a 16th century, would you believe, or is it a 1600 uh, writer called, uh, whose name, oh, Afra Ben, there you go, by a 15th, 16th century writer 
1600 writer called Afra Ben called Oronuko, the slave prince. And she took this short story and she saw that there was a lady called Imoinda who was his princess lover and realized that she was silent. So she decided to give a voice and she created a libretto called Imoinda. And out of this libretto, I've created my opera trilogy, which takes places in three areas. Of part one, which you have the video, which was funded by Opera America, is called Imoinda and takes part, it takes part in Africa. She's in love with Oronoko, but they can't marry because she's been promised to somebody else. And eventually, when they fight this, they're sent to slavery. Part two, called The Crossing, is when they have this major crossing across the Atlantic. And it's mostly the ensemble singing. The ensemble singing, uh, because as you know, the um, enslaved people were all in boats. Have you ever seen the photographs or the drawings of how they, they yeah. built boats, especially for the slaves? And they were literally lying down or sitting down throughout the boat, the boat, the whole voyage. And what happened is because they tried to feed as many as they could, you see two or three levels of just slaves. And they had nowhere to go. They were all with chains and they couldn't even go pee anywhere or do anything. The men and the women were separated, but that was it. And sometimes the women were raped. Am I allowed to use yeah, that word yeah, on, on the radio? They didn't have any names. They had numbers. And you get an idea of that in the crossing. You know, they talk about being raped. They talk about my name is number 156. And today they came and got me. They lost their own names. And then when they finally land in Cuba, that's the end of part two. And their part three is called Plantation, which is when Imoinda, who is a house slave, and Oko, who is working in the plantation, they meet again. Because when they were in their voyage across the sea, in the crossing, they didn't know the other was there. Don't forget, men and women were separate. So one didn't know the other was there. So they finally meet again in Cuba. And it's a sad ending, but it's a positive ending. Oko dies. It opens with Imoinda pregnant. And she hasn't been made pregnant by, by Oko. She's made pregnant by her owner, the Masa, she calls it. And of course, um, you learn a lot about how they're suffering and slavery. She has some beautiful solos, in my opinion, where she talks about what it feels like. The birds are free. The bees are free. The animals are free. But she's not free. She has no freedom. She cannot even move without permission from her master. Eventually she gives birth to this baby and she doesn't want it. And there's a, there's a whole chorus of women that help her to give birth. I would like to think it's very beautiful. And there's a lady who was her maid in part one and she appears again. And this time she's a Santera. You know what a Santera is? No, tell me. A Santera. Ah, well, when the, when the enslaved people were brought to Cuba, the Spanish Catholic church was very rigid. So it used to say, accept that they even say accept jesus christ they said accept the catholic church or die and by then they were very clever so they said okay so what they did is they gave the name of their gods the names of the saints so in private all these years in cuba he finally didn't come out till castro actually who allowed it but for all these years they would say santa barbara bendita and then they would say chango chango and of course chango in cuba was the name of the african god the African god, but to show the Spaniards or the Europeans, she was known as Santa Barbara. And so this Santera starts in the middle of the time when, back to Imoinda, she's giving birth, she calls the rivers, River Nile, River Niger, this and that river, and slowly the baby comes out and is born. 
And like I say, at first she doesn't want this baby. Why does she want this baby? It's half white, half black, and the child of her master. She doesn't want it. But eventually she begins to realize that this is the beginning of a new culture. This is the beginning of the Afro-Cuban culture. And so finally, she's wrapped in this, in red. And they finally they're singing, the girl in red will not forget. The girl in red will not forget. At first she's singing to the choir of women, and then eventually the men. And then she's singing to the audience, the girl in red will not forget. And then she's singing to the world. That little girl in red, she's going to tell the world what has happened, what has happened to her people, and they will not forget. And well, that's the end of the opera. Well, we're going to hear from the first opera, from Imoinda. Act uh, one, this, yes, this, part one. This yes. love duet, uh, which was recorded... Um, with Ebony Opera uh, in New York. In Opera, 20- Ebony. Opera Ebony. Opera Ebony. In 2015. Uh, but before we go, um, first of all, thank you so much uh, for your time. It's a pleasure. But, uh, and I cannot wait to talk to you more and to dig into all of your recordings. Um, it sounds like you have done all of the work that I, I should have been doing on my own, but you did it for me. So I'm going to go listen. <laughs> but um, I would love to know, uh, you introduce yourself in a video I, I, I saw uh, as Chachi. And um, Chachi, <laughs> is it okay? You gotta we... say it right. Chachi, Chachi. <laughs> can, yes. you, can we talk about that just a little bit? How did you get yeah. this name? <laughs> well, when I was a first child, and okay. I was given the name of my mother. My grandmother actually invaded, invented my mother's name, and so that we would be separate. My middle name is Caridad, okay. and the nickname for Caridad in Cuba is Cachi or Chachi. And okay. you find that a lot of Cuban women have the name Caridad somewhere. Uh-huh. And the reason is that they pray to the saint of charity, Caridad, that the children will be born healthy. And if the children is born healthy, then they call Chachi. And okay. so, Odaline de la Caridad, Odaline belonging to the saint charity, Martinez. Okay. So, Chachi is a nickname for charity. Okay. May I, Does that help? May I address you as Chachi as we say goodbye? Yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Oliver, it's been a pleasure. Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Opera Philadelphia. Friends of the show, Opera Philadelphia, where Toby and I enjoyed 
019. Just eating a, like, you know, like the lady in the tramp, one of the uh, 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 cheesesteak sandwiches to where your lips met in the middle. We actually went to this pizzeria called Alice twice because the pizza was so good. And we did share a, a couple, a little bit of za together. It was really romantic. <laughs> is taking it next step into the future of the art form with the launch of the Opera Philadelphia Channel, a global broadcast platform that will bring a new season of performances into your home via your television screen or streaming device. Uh, Weston, how are you, Weston, how are you streaming opera these days? What is what is the device that you're using? Um, have you ever seen The Matrix? I have a little chair that has like a little hole in my brain that I just plug a cable into while Keanu Reeves <laughs> watches and uh, uh, learns Kung Fu with me. Ashley, do, are you streaming anything? Uh, anytime Anita is singing with the Greek National Opera, oh. I just watch it on repeat and I tape my iPhone to my head okay, so I, that I can feel the warmth. I have to confess to being like the biggest Luddite, which actually is not a confession. Everybody knows that. But when <laughs> when the Met streaming, nightly streaming was new, I was using my phone to stream the, the Met and then using my Apple TV to mirror was on my phone. So it was yeah. actually really difficult for me to engage on social media while I was streaming, which meant that I had to like pause the opera and then use my phone, get it out of the stream and then do something in that's whatever Facebook post and then go back on. It was the most kind of low tech, embarrassing way to enjoy opera and to try to share it at the same time. I'm the worst. The Opera Philadelphia channel will feature a series of commissions by visionary composers and dynamic performances produced for the screen. Audiences can expect new presentations of David T. Little's Soldier Songs and- Ah, oh, yes. Soldier Songs. Yeah, we missed it. It was gonna be Nathan Gunn. Go on, oh. I'm sorry, George. As well as Lawrence Brownlee's performance of Cycles of My Being by composer-in-residence Taishan Sori. And, and don't forget my boy Hans-Werner Hense. El Cimarron. Yeah. I think it's El yeah. Cimarron because El is like a Spanish article. So I yeah, think well, he was German, so I'm pronouncing it like he would have been pronounced at Oliver. Thank <laughs> very you very good. much. Very good. And it was priced at 99 bucks and will be offered along with pay-per-view options for individual performances, just like pro wrestling. For more information, go to operafilla.org. All right, listen up, y'all. Communication is key in this game we play. Give and take. Communicate if you really want to score. Post to post, belittles and gloats. These are the listeners' post-game notes. You're listening to Opera Box Score, and you're welcome to our uh, listener mailbag segment. I'm reaching my hand into the bag here. Uh, Ashley, if you could do some sound effects as I reach my hand in the bag. <laughs> oh, what, what's this? What's this? There are two listener mailbags today. Ashley, you want to take us through our first one for today? <laughs> Those were very heavy pieces of postage in, in the listener mailbag, <laughs> you can tell from my cinematic level sound effects. Um, yeah, so this one, uh, the first one is actually going to come to us from a lovely gentleman named Pete from Clacton-on-Sea, UK. Uh, Ooh, and this across actually, the pond. Yes, across the pond. And this came... Uh, this came directly to me, and it was based on uh, one of our review episodes from a couple of weeks ago. So, he writes, Dear Ashley, 
I wanted to introduce myself to you for having heard your truly lovely Opera Box Score Hall of Fame debut program featuring beloved Beverly Sills. I cannot tell you how delighted I was to hear your talk about your love of Beverly. You really made my day. I got together with my late husband, Neil, 49 years ago, and he was just completely nuts about Beverly. I wasn't, nor did I like opera. Fast forward five months, I was ill and off work. I decided to listen to Beverly's Lucia and try to follow what was going on using the libretto. When the opera was finished, Beverly had a new convert and Neil kindly allowed me to take over the role of being her unofficial South African praise singer. I was hooked and I could not stop listening to her recordings that were available to me at the time. Things got so really bad for me that I would go to the Johannesburg Record Library and I hang my head in shame as I tell you this, I would steal the opera news. Opera British Stereo Review, Music and Musician's Friend that featured Beverly on the cover, or I would tear out all of the reviews of Beverly's performances from the magazine. Listen. I, honestly, goals. I <laughs> <laughs> Honey, you are not alone. Who among us has not teared a little something out of a, out of a thing in the library? Uh, <laughs> Neil finally had enough of my thieving ways and told me he didn't want to receive a phone call from the police telling him I had been arrested for theft and that I was to subscribe to Opera News no matter how much it cost. I complied. This is where it gets really great, you guys. All of it's great, but this gets great. Neil encouraged me to write to Beverly, which I eventually did, and I was so thrilled when she replied. I immediately wrote again, and this time her reply came on her personal stationery, revealing her home address. We corresponded for a while, and I still treasure her letters as much as I did the day they arrived. Uh, then he goes on to invite me to a group that they have on Facebook uh, called the Beverly Sills Crazies, of which I have joined, because if there's something that I <laughs> Am. It's a Beverly Sills crazy. Uh, they've got some really great members of the group, uh, as well as Nancy Guy, who's author of the book, The Magic of Beverly Sills, and Roy Dix, who has the incomparable website called BeverlySillsOnline.com. Uh, thank you so much once again for making my day and remembering our Beverly. Much love, Pete. So and I want to say thank you so much, Pete, for making our day by sending that in. Uh, I mean, it's more of a... a Thank you for Ashley, I suppose, since he sought you out. But I, I, we really appreciate any listener feedback, positive, negative. Um, and feel free to, you know, tweet at us, email us, um, um, Facebook message us. Uh, we always love to see these kinds of things show up in our inboxes. Well, not to put, you on, not to put you on the spot, Ashley. Go on, what were you about to say? No, what's so lovely about this, though, is that, you know, this is actually, even though he wrote to me, it's a thank you to all of us, because this platform is what gave me the chance to talk about how much I love her. And it's so great to find other people that are these, quote, Beverly Sills crazies, because she was such a spectacular artist, spectacular human. Uh, so so I am I am grateful to this show and, and our camaraderie and friendship and our love over this this beautiful collective thing. Um, you said you were going to put me on the spot about well, something. Now I'm I nervous. I just want to tell the audience, for those of you who uh, want to hear that segment, you have to subscribe to Opera Box Score Podcast. That's yes. how you do that on, on Stitcher, or you can add us to your favorites on Apple Podcasts. I forget which one is which, but you know what I'm talking about. Subscribe to our feed, yeah. and then go back <laughs> in the feed a couple of weeks to our July 4th episode, uh, which is called America Fach, yeah, volume two, where you can hear Ashley's tribute to Beverly Sills. And not to put you on the spot, but besides the Lucia, if we could play out this letter uh, with a minute of bubbles, what would you like to choose for us? Ooh, to put me on the spot. Um, I, I go back to this and it, it is not, 
It is not a deep dive that makes me sound learned or classy in any way, but it is true to how I fell in love with Bubbles in the first place. And it's going to be part of the recording that she did on The Muppet Show from Pigoletto. We also have a second letter here from our fan, Heather, in California. She writes to us, knowing how very busy you must be these days, I hesitate to ask this favor, but can you recommend a book or online course or other resource to up my game as an opera aficionado? I remember a passing comment from you or maybe Matt, which I found helpful, about using Britain as a gateway to appreciate contemporary operas. But sadly, I'm not up to truly grasping Britain yet. I'm struggling with Strauss. Strauss's orchestrations often seem so disengaged from the vocal lines that I have a hard time knowing where to listen, if that makes any sense. Uh, I really enjoyed the spring training series on Frau Oneschatten, and in those clips, I felt the orchestra complemented the vocal lines. But when I've listened to performances of Arabella, Rosenkavalier, etc., I've struggled to put all the music I'm hearing at any point in time together as an organic whole. I heard my first ring cycle a couple of years ago and had a similar problem. I think that because unlike Mozart or Puccini, the orchestra isn't similar uh, to accompaniment for the voices. Then I decided I needed to integrate the vocal lines in my mind with the orchestra as just another instrument, but an instrument with language and a character, thus with richer meaning. I don't know if that's correct, but it did help. That particular method isn't working with, for me with Strauss, partly because it often sounds to me like the vocal line and the orchestra are in completely different keys. This can't be right, so I need to learn a good way of listening because I want to enjoy all periods of opera. That is from Heather in California. And, uh, and, and Matt could... Yeah, and that was directed uh, to me specifically. Uh, so thank you right. for the message. And she gave me permission to share her letter on the air. Uh, but yeah, as you're about to say, Matt is unavailable today. So um, Ashley, can you go ahead and read Matt's response? Yes. Playing the role of Matt Cummings today is Ashley Hargrave. And, <laughs> and I read. Uh, Matt says, great question, Heather. And you should give yourself a little more credit because it sounds like you're already taking in quite a lot when it comes to Strauss. I would agree. 
For less straightforward opera composers like Strauss, Wagner, and Britton, I like to keep in mind that there is more than one way to listen to it, and you may want to focus on different things as you revisit the works. For Strauss in particular, a lot of his music can be experienced on both the large scale, where it washes over you like a wave, and in the tiny details of each instrument, and both of those are absolutely valid experiences. One book that really helped me crack the code of his really dense music is Alex Ross's The Rest is Noise, compared to Verdi or Rossini, where the emotion really carries the music forward. Strauss and company are often a lot more cerebral, and this book does a great job of making their music digestible just by showing what they were trying to do. He's also a columnist for The New Yorker and one of my favorite music writers to read. If you have a little money to spend, I definitely recommend the Great Courses series online. Many of the classical music courses, including one about how to listen to opera, are taught by San Francisco local Robert Greenberg. You can often find discounts on these courses if you want to do a little digging. Also, I would just interject, and this is Ashley speaking again, uh, you may have access to something through, if you're, if you're employed, a lot of employers will have some sort of educational benefit or connections to things like the great courses. So definitely check that out and see if your employer has that. Um, let's see, they often advertise on podcasts with discount codes and coupons for free courses. I also have found Wikipedia to be an indispensable resource, but to make the most of it, you have to channel your inner researcher. The big popular articles are good, but the best stuff is at the bottom of the page. One, the list of related articles, and two, the resources cited in the article. I have gone down many a rabbit hole using those resources at the bottom as a jumping off point to find other opinions and inf information. Finally, if Oliver doesn't mention it, you listeners may not know this, but OBS is not Oliver's first time in the opera podcasting sandbox. His previous show, Opera Now, which was great, uh, had a segment called Oliver's Corner that does some deep, all caps, deep dives. The current events segments may be a little out of date, but don't sleep on Oliver's Corner. Oh, <laughs> I did not read that other just now. That was so sweet. Uh, and I... Agree. <laughs> I spent so much. <laughs> I spent so much time preparing those Oliver's Corner segments, which started off as like five-minute little bits that we did, truly a corner of the podcast, and expanded to sometimes a full hour of the podcast. So, and they're and I would agree they are good and they are deep. I mean, if if you don't get a full like classical music degree after listening to a couple of those episodes, I don't. I don't know. I can't help you. Thanks, <laughs> Weston. I uh, I uh, have a little bit less in the way of specific research sources. I, I definitely agree that Wikipedia is great uh, as far as uh, introducing yourself to various uh, subjects, and particularly when it comes to like the composer's intentions. Um, I would also say that YouTube is a fantastic resource. Often I find that people tend to be confused by a lot of uh, sort of 20th century operas in particular because they tend to see a production that's, you know, uh, hyper-reggy, disconnected from what the actual text is saying. So they watch it, and then there's like a level of, of you know, a wide gulf of what do they actually mean. So it's good to go back and compare different performances. Uh, there are also YouTubers that discuss uh, music and uh, co various composers, and um, there's there's all sorts of resources online. If you go to YouTube and type in Strauss and whatever it is you want to find out more about, you can absolutely do it that way. Uh, that said, uh, I, I did want to say, like, Matt, I think you already have some really good instincts for what you uh, need to work out with, with, with Strauss in particular, because that was my first instinct when I uh, first 
whenever I try to introduce Strauss to someone is to draw that distinction between the sort of the Verdi style where you have sort of minim minimal accompaniment and the voice is the lead and the voice is the most important thing. Strauss and to a lesser extent Wagner is much more, the voice is just an instrument. <laughs> it's, um, it is a little bit more, uh, I think, dramatic in Strauss because the parts are so hard and so uh, full of, of meaning, but it is part of the orchestra. If you just listen to that vocal line, you're not gonna get that complete musical uh, picture. So how do you kind of get to the point where you listen to that? Well, I think there are a couple of ways to do it. One, uh, I find that when I'm encountering a new era or style of music, I find that I have to sort of gear shift into it. So when I'm listening to Haydn, for example, um, and then I want to listen to some Philip Glass, I have to like listen to like intermediate steps between Haydn and Philip Glass for it to make sense. I have to retrain my ear. So um, I would recommend, if you're trying to get into Strauss, look into some other composers from around Strauss's time period, from uh, his neck of the woods. Uh, Franz Schrecker springs to mind, Eric Korngold, um, early Schoenberg even, or, 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 or even Mahler. Uh, once you kind of hear what all those composers were playing off of, and indeed many of them knew each other, um, you kind of get a better sense of the musical vocabulary you're working with, which uh, is always very exciting to me because then you also discover new composers that you had no idea about before. Um, I would also say that uh, another method that I've employed, and you know, you know me, I listen to some weird stuff, <laughs> but I didn't get there organically. You know, I, I started off with the 19th century classics like everybody else. Um, but I, what I found really helped me when I was having trouble with, um, say, Berg's Wozzeck, I was like, okay, I'm not getting this. I don't understand the appeal. So then I listened to Lulu, which was written a little bit later, is a little bit more advanced, more serialism, uh, rather than free atonality. Then I went back and listened to Wozzeck, and all of a sudden it made a lot more gut sense. Uh, and you, if you keep doing that, finding the next step beyond it, and then returning to it, I think you might find that it makes a little bit more sense. My other um, pro tip for Strauss particularly is to listen to stuff that isn't just his operas. Uh, because his music is so orchestral, but so dramatically descriptive, uh, you should really look into his tone poems, especially, especially Eine Alpen Symphony, which is a tone poem, which is just an orchestral work, basically like a symphony, where you, um, it tells the story of someone going from the bottom to the top and back down again of a mountain in the Alps. And along the way, they run into bad weather. Um, there's a, a, a really cool moment where the sun comes in through the trees uh, and you can hear the sunrise and the sunset uh, and you can hear um, uh, wind and, and birds. And the once you understand how Strauss is using these orchestral noises to tell a very, very specific uh, story dramatically, I think that will give you an idea of what to listen for in his operas, which of course are dr inherently dramatic works. And I think that will give you a good leg up on the competition, not just for learning about Strauss, but for any of the late romantic and early modern German composers. That's my pro tip. <laughs> Ooh, all right. <laughs> no, that was excellent, though. And I have to say, 
Heather, I don't know your background or your training, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that you don't have a music degree and that that's not your profession. And I want to say that uh, it's hard to read books that help under- that help people understand the language of music if you really aren't trained in this. But Weston is a great example of somebody who's built up his literacy and his vocabulary, frankly, through curiosity. I, I do not have I do not have a music degree. This, this right. is all me just kind of hurling myself into it. Right. <laughs> um, so he built that up through his own curiosity and maybe even through frustration with not having the vocabulary to express himself since he's finding himself on the radio and on podcasts a lot lately. Um, so <laughs> I was going to recommend that you go back to my old podcast, Opera Now, and try to find the episodes I did on Rosenkavalier. But since Matt already recommended that, um, I'll have to um, go to my next bit of advice, which is to start with the opera Ariadne of Naxos. So mm. Ariadne of Naxos is, is in two parts. There's the prologue and then there's the opera proper. You can go ahead and skip the prologue, even though you'll go back to it eventually, but skip the prologue and um, begin with the opera proper and listen all the way up to the end of Zerbinetta's aria. And choose a recording that has singers that you already love. There's a recording with um, Leontine Price and Edita Gruborova, conducted by Sir George Schulte. There's a great one with um, Jesse Norman, also with Edita Gruborova, conducted by Kurt Mazur. And more recently, there's one with Deborah Voigt and Natalie Desai, which is conducted by Giuseppe Zanopoli. And they're all great. And what I want you to do is to really hang on to the vocal lines of Ariadne, Zerbinetta, and the Comedia dell'arte troupe. And if you can, you know, if you can listen to those, you really understand a lot about how Strauss writes with a voice. Uh, I feel like the most accessible uh, points along the way are the music of the Commedia troupe, like the Harlequin little aria, which is very, very, you know, um, almost like magic flute, like Papageno-like. And then a step up from there would be Zerbinetta's music, uh, which is much more expansive, but still uh, has this feeling of comedy, of burlesque. And there's even like a burlesque scene uh, between Ariadne's two arias, which is a real treat and is very you know easy to grasp rhythmically and harmonically. So start with those scenes of uh, Zerbinetta and the comedy troupe, and then work, and that sort of falls in the middle of the opera, and then sort of work your way backwards and forwards, and you'll get both of Ariadne's arias. The first one is Ein Schönes Bar, and the second one is Es gibt ein Reich. And if you, you can hear the differences between the Commedia and Zerbinetta music and the music for Ariadne, the, the heroine of the show. And the Ariadne music is really Strauss at like what Strauss does best. Uh, this is music that is what we love about Strauss. That the melodies are, they feel epic and they take surprising turns. The orchestration is very rich. And then there's like heroic climaxes. And most especially, and this may sound gross, but uh, the, ref- the refractory period is long. You know, the climaxes happen. They don't happen right at four-fifths or at five-fifths. They happen more like at 3.5-fifths along the way. So you have this time to kind of come down, which is very, in my opinion, feminine. And you go ahead and call me a sexist, but that's, that's the way I feel about it. Um, then after you get used to the music of Riadne, um of Naxos, then you go to Rosenkavalier. And just focus on the trio and final duet, which are, you know, easily the most beautiful music ever written by anybody. And see if you can get into that. And then if you like that, go to the first act, which to me is, is the best act of the opera. 
and begin with the Marshallin's monologue, Dagate um, Erhin, and take it all the way to the duet, which begins with the line, Mein schöner Schatz, wie uh, will sie sich traurig machen, which is sung by Octavian. And you have to get yourself a libretto, and you have to follow along, and you'll realize that Strauss here is writing very conversationally, and he is really doing his damn best to illustrate the libretto itself. And it's you get these moments of arioso, like little short, short moments that feel like numbers operas. Uh, but they are so organic, they flit in and out of what is truly dialogue. And if you can follow this, this, the, the text uh, with your recording... I promise that you will cry. This music is so ridiculously gorgeous and feels so human. And uh, maybe it's because I'm getting old and like I'm still single and I just feel the Marshallin so much right now in my life. So, um, yeah. And then if you still don't get in, can't get into Strauss after doing that, those exercises, then you're hopeless. <laughs> um, Ashley, I'm going to uh, play us out with a little bit of that duet sung by... Ansel um, Pibon Order with uh, Felicity Lott. But did you want to say anything about Marshallin or about? Uh, I know that you have a, a relationship to that to that role. I, ooh, I yes. I mean, I all I can do is echo my incredibly intelligent colleagues uh, in terms of the different techniques they've given you to kind of wrap your brain around this stuff. And I also want to echo their their sentiment that you know you you do seem to have a really good grasp on on Strauss for for being for starting this with, I don't really think I get Strauss. You get them better than most. Um, I, I absolutely agree to, you know, to look at some of the tone poems, you know, the thing about Strauss is he's, that's kind of music that you've got to let happen to you in the beginning. Mm. Um, I, I tried to come at it at a very, with a very analytical eye in the beginning when I was really kind of getting into the meat and potatoes of it in grad school. And it, it almost broke my brain because I was trying to look at it like I looked at Handel or Mozart. And it just, you, it's, it's a different beast. It's a totally different bear, uh, whatever creature you want to mention. But if, if you really need to feel some feelings and sit on your living room floor and, and weep over something awful, the, the presentation of the rose, just, just get that, get that trio, let those, you know, real crunchy entrances just come at you and wash over you. And once you've wept openly seven or eight times to that, like I did when I first encountered it, then you can really start to kind of break down some of the, some of the other risks that happen. So presentation of the rose is uh, act two. And then the trio, which everybody knows, we just call the Rose and Cuffler trio is act three. And I'm recommending doing the trio and final love duet, and then studying this swath of Act One, which begins with the Marshallin's monologue and concludes with this duet. And here is Anselfi Bonotter and Felicity Lott.
This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Lizette Oropresa made Teatro Real de Madrid history on July 28th when she performed an encore during a performance of Verdi's La Traviata. The soprano repeated the aria Adio del Passato in the third act. Friend of the show, the DC-based In series, that's I-N, In, has launched InVision, its digital performing arts center. The first video on the platform features singers performing from Handel's Circe alongside 19 musicians from the Tehran Symphony. In a terrible week for tenor Andrea Bocelli, who made a statement last week saying that he felt, quote, humiliated and offended, quote, by orders requiring he stay in his own home, I could not leave the house even though I had committed no crime, Bocelli said. Uh-huh. He admits that he disobeyed the lockdown rules and encouraged his followers to break the rules about social distancing and wearing masks. Then, after swift backlash to his dangerous comments, Bocelli letter claimed that his remarks were, quote, misunderstood. The show must go on in Salzburg. That's the message from the famed Austrian Opera Festival. According to the New York Times, artists and staff will be divided into three groups depending on their ability to socially distance. Singers, orchestra musicians, and others who need to interact with one another another closely are tested weekly. That was a great read, Oliver. Whether they have symptoms or not. Socially distant Cosi Fantute opened on August 2nd, and the festival's production of Elektra, conducted by Franz Besler-Mürst, opens on August 6th. An initiative developed by a group of stage directors, including friends of show Paul Curran and Alison Moritz, called Balancing the Stage has debuted, described as, quote, a group of opera stage directors encouraging our peers to come together, discuss our craft, continue our artistic development, mentor emerging artists, and promote our discipline. In the interest of full disclosure, we banned George from today's episode because he is also a founding member of Balancing the Stage. Learn more about their mission and their work at Balancing the Stage at balancingthestage.org. Los Angeles Opera has announced that it will be postponing four productions that were scheduled for later this year. As a result, the new programming for fall 2020 will be presented digitally. Among the new programs will be a virtual gala to celebrate LA Opera's 35th anniversary, a live stream of La Monte Anonyme by French composer Joseph Boulogne, Chevalet du Saint-Georges, and a series of seven operatic digital shorts, including newly commissioned works. The secret is out. Across all platforms, Black artists have taken to social media to tell their stories of discrimination in the classical music world. And traditional media, from NPR to the Chicago Defender, are here to amplify it. We strongly encourage our listeners to seek out and hear these perspectives as opera continues to process and confront instances of racism in our art form and our institutions. The Asian American Experience in Opera is a roundtable discussion between Nicholas Fan, Myra Huang, and friend of the show Andrew Stenson, hosted by Lakita Mitchell. The four performers talked about discrimination and next steps in confronting racism and implicit bias in the opera world towards persons of color. The video can be viewed on the Facebook page for soprano Lakita Mitchell at SOP, S-O-P underscore Mitchell. Opera America has announced the launch of the Campbell Opera Librettist Prize. 
The prize was created and funded by friend of the show, librettist Mark Campbell, with the intention of awarding an American librettist who, quote, demonstrates an exceptional talent for writing opera librettos and who exhibits the potential for making a substantial contribution to the opera literature. One day, Opera America, one day, you'll launch the Opera Box Score Podcasting Award, and in a surprise turn of events, Opera Box Score will beat out ARIA code for the inaugural award. Friends of the show, Minnesota Opera, have re-announced their new safe and innovative 2020 fall season. From September through December, their socially distanced live events include Opera in the Outfield at CHS Field, home of the St. Paul Saints, a digital version of Wuthering Heights, a 3D digital version of Das Rheingold, and a live-streamed holiday concert. Find all the deets at mnopera.org. The newest member of the Lyric Opera of Chicago's Ryan Opera Center is South African tenor Lunga Eric Hallam, whose move from South Africa to the United States during a global pandemic was nothing short of a miracle. Learn about his five-month journey to Chicago in Lyric's online newsletter, Lyric Lately. Exit stage right. The Izango Ensemble of South Africa has announced the death of actor and associate director Zamile Gantana on July 15th due to COVID-19. And on this day, Monday, August, uh, August 3rd, in 1778, it was the opening of Milan's La Scala Opera House, the Teatro alla Scala, inaugurated with the premiere of Antonio Salieri's opera, Europa Riconosciuta. In 1795, it was the founding of the Paris Conservatory. In 1829, Rossini's William Tell made its debut in Paris. That one is for you, Maestro Berese. In 1947, Maria Callas made her international debut, starring in La Gioconda. And in 1959, it was the birth of English barahunk Simon Kinleyside. Happy birthday, you gorgeous man. And that is your two-minute drill. from the 1952 studio recording of La Gioconda with Maria Callas, but knowing Callas and the way she phrased and sang as well as I do, um, I'm pretty sure she sang that in her debut in 1947, a couple years earlier. And man, for somebody who's just beginning their career to put that much chest into it, (laughs) and I don't have a score, (laughs) so I don't know how high that was, but it was clearly above the soprano break, but she's like, you know what? I'm just going to bring it up there. <laughs> Come what may. <laughs> I mean, the notion of the uh, of the Skrelt, I didn't think was born until 90s musical theater. But man, she comes close. Uh, and I do want to uh, go ahead and just correct myself. Uh, I believe I'm I believe it's Laquita Mitchell. And the, uh, the, the part I butchered at the end of that read uh, was the Facebook page at like the at sign uh, underscore SOP as in soprano underscore Mitchell. So I'm oh, pretty no, sure aside from that, I did an excellent no, no, there's job. No, there's no underscore. It's just at stop Mitchell. So if you're going to Facebook, <laughs> go to facebook.com. W, first, you open your computer and you type in www.facebook.com and then forward slash soft Mitchell, SOP Mitchell. That's what it is. Yes. Okay. okay. Yes, I did it. 
I did it right the first time. I think we can all agree yeah. uh, that it, I was completely right, and there were no mistakes made. Yeah. Well, speaking uh, let's of, move on. No, no. I just want to say that, like, you know, we're trying to do this without a lot of <laughs> editing, but um, the fact of the matter is that NPR and uh, WQXR and the Chicago Defender all posted stories this week about mm-hmm. all the activity that's happening in the classical music world. And, um, you know... WQXR, which is a classical radio station, not surprising that they would post a story like that. But to see it come out in NPR and also the Chicago Defender, which is like a historically black social justice newspaper right. in Chicago, that was like, oh, wow, great. You know, people are going to hear about this stuff. So um, so we want to link to those uh, traditional media outlets on our website, if whoever is building the website for this episode. And uh, if you're on social media and you follow any of the you know prominent black artists, I'm sure you've seen all these stories yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah. very much uh, uh, important, I think, especially uh, for non-persons of color to really read these stories and really look look at these injustices in the face because that's the the, the first very important step towards uh, correcting them. Um, and speaking of uh, Mr. Bocelli. <laughs> I feel like a broken record. I feel like I speak to somebody being tone deaf every other episode in which I participate. But my goodness, this is so terribly tone deaf. So to come back and say that you were misunderstood, I mm, I, I challenge that, sir. I challenge it. Um, but if this is what you need to say to feel like you have come back from the brink and done a good job, then mazel to you. But I, yeah, I know what you meant. I knew what you meant. Well, as a, remind, as a reminder, Bocelli had COVID-19 himself, but... You had COVID. Like, you had it. You may not have had it as bad as other people, but, like, for that reason alone, yes, I know you didn't commit a crime. Guess what? None of us did either. This thing is tough. It's hard for everybody. It's not a contest, and I assure you someone else has it worse than you in terms of how their life has been affected. So can we please just all be good neighbors and good humans and get on board so that we can get out of this dystopian hellscape that is staying home so that we don't get sick. Yeah, it, it's it's very much one of those things. Uh, and he has such a, a, a wide following. I mean, obviously, uh, he's he, uh, in the, he's more in the, cl- uh, the crossover world where, you know, he kind of crosses over into pop territory. He has a, a large following. And to just, you know, blatantly disregard that, you know, it's not just him. I mean, obviously, he was potentially uh, endangering other people's lives by going out with COVID. But even uh, uh, talking out against it with with that wide a platform is just truly, truly inconscionable. And I and I'm very disappointed in uh, in Mr. Bocelli. Uh, And yeah, this is one of those things where, you know, I, I I wonder where the social social media manager, which I'm sure he has. I wonder where they were when when these things came out. You mean because, his publicist? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just uh, it's true. Anyway. His, he's big enough where he should really have one. He shouldn't be allowed yeah, to tweet yeah. himself or whatever. However, I mean, the, the publicist is the one who told him to say he was misunderstood. That's that's where. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, moving on from uh, <laughs> that bit of recklessness. Uh, I have to say, reading through this particular one, we have so many friends of shows <laughs> in this particular <laughs> two-minute drill. I love how many friends we have. Oliver, who's your favorite friend of this week? Oh, don't make me choose. But uh, 
you know, we haven't talked about Andrew Stenson in a while. We haven't talked about, like, you know, the racism that Asians experience in opera. But we did mention Nick Pond's blog post. I believe it was last week. So I'm going to go with my brothers in, in Asian-ness, Andrew Stenson, Nick Pond, Myra Huang, and that conversation hosted by Laquita Mitchell at SOP Mitchell. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification, Oliver. Uh, I also want to point out, uh, I think it's really exciting uh, that L.A. Opera is uh, doing, um, for their new sort of digital season, they're doing an opera by Joseph Bologna, uh, who we talked about, I believe it was uh, last yeah, week. Yeah, I was actually uh, going to mention that. Like, that's crazy, yeah. like, how well all this publicity is timed. I, I almost get the feeling that the New York Times had the, the scoop on the... LA Opera press release, and they yeah. wanted to prepare us for that being a reality. Because I've, I've never heard of an opera of, uh, of Bologna being performed ever by anyone. Uh, so I'm, I'm really, really actually excited to see it. Um, uh, he's been one of my, he's on the periphery of composers that I'm like, really excited to, you know, learn about, but there's not really that many recordings, you know, and the recordings that are there I have issues with. And, and, and I'm just very excited that uh, a major opera company, even in this, this weird digital world, uh, is going to be uh, really doing it, I think, at a very relevant uh, and I have to say, I'm, I'm shocked that you're interested in Boulogne, not because he's uh, a minority composer, but because he is composing in a very traditional late Rococo language, which doesn't seem to be <laughs> something you'd be interested in at all. So, Well, the, yeah, the, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, like, like our dear uh, uh, listener mailbag segment, you know, um, I didn't have any trouble getting into Strauss. That was, that was like hitting me like right where I wanted to be. But I got a gear shift into that, into the, that, you know, uh, classic era. You know, I've got to find that form and just really feel it out. So that's going to be my challenge uh, while... Uh, <laughs> while our listener works on uh, Strauss. And I think that'll be a good sort of dual sort of thing to keep each other accountable for. So that's my New Year's resolution half a year late. Well, Lyric Opera of Chicago had to go to South Africa to find a tenor. <laughs> so, I mean, it's sort of funny because I went to the uh, Ryan Opera Center uh, finals um, last year. And usually they end up, you know, picking the next class from those auditions. But at the end of the auditions, they announced all the new members. And when they got to the tenors, none of the three that I think made it to the finals ended up getting chosen, which was sort of like, ouch, you know, because um, some of those tenors were actually I thought were quite good. Um, but I mean, I'm sort of glad that now we have two black tenors in the ensemble for 2021. Um so yeah, good on Lyric Opera, and I look forward to hearing more from, um, uh, how do you say his name, Lunga? I think, I think it's Lunga, yeah. yeah. I also thought it was, for, for me it was really interesting uh, just seeing sort of the immigration piece of the puzzle and how that's been coming together. Uh, some, some listeners might know that I have to deal with a lot of immigration and visa paperwork in the other parts of my life, and, uh, you know, having anybody get the uh, the O one visa, the exceptional talent visa. It's uh, it, it takes in normal times, it takes bending over backwards. In normal times, it takes an insane amount of things to just go right and sheer luck. So when they talk about how this was a bit miraculous that he was able to start processing paperwork in March, get in in July, that's yeah, that was that was very it was a nail biter of a story to to read. 
So many, uh, it, it's just so nice to hear a good uh, immigration story. I don't think we've heard, heard any of those for a long time. Uh, let's go ahead and wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. All right, good call, bad call. Who wants to start, Oliver? So um, for once, I can actually talk about sports. Um, I'm obviously missing my Olympics, my gymnastics, and my diving that I'd normally be fascinated by, which would have been happening right now. But something brought me so much joy this week, which is the most recent episode. Maybe it's the one back in your feed if, if you're listening to this later on. Of Jonathan Van Ness's podcast called Getting Curious. And in the current episode, he interviews Ali Reisman, the um, team captain of the 2016 uh, what they call the Fabulous Five or something like that? I forget what they were called. Are but, they the Fab Five? I think they were. Um, anyway, Ali Reisman is a true American hero. And their conversation is the new superlative of what excitement is. I mean, Jonathan Mendes is already kind of like hard to control. He gets so excited. But he <laughs> is so excited in this to talk to her that it cannot, it, it just brings a smile to your face. And her story about making the Olympic team in 2012 and, uh, and then in 2016, it is so triumphant that you will cry. It's so, so good. I really recommend that you listen to this if you need something to lift you up. It's a podcast called Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness. And it's the episode where he interviews Ellie Reisman. I used to say, as my superlative, um, I'm as excited as a dolphin giving birth. But now, whenever I want to say I'm excited about something, I'm as excited as Jonathan Van Ness interviewing Ali Reisman. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave. As a shout out to my new buddy Pete and all of my fellow Beverly Sills crazies, I want to encourage you to listen to, you can Google this, you can YouTube this. If we remember, we'll put it on our website. It is Beverly Sills and Luciano Pavarotti doing the Act One duet from Lucia in 1969 in Mexico City. It is delicious. I encourage you to spend 13 minutes of your day listening to it. Well, let's let Weston do his good call, and then we'll play out with a little bit of Sills and Pavarotti. I actually have a little bit of a bad call. Uh, I was looking and putting together what all the anniversaries were. We like to keep things light, births and uh, and openings of opera houses and premieres. But I also noticed that today was the anniversary of the death of Alfred Schnitka mm. in 1998, which makes me very, very sad, uh, especially since Oliver just will not allow me to talk about Alfred Schnitka uh, really ever. So I feel justified in We need to back. be inviting to our audience. <laughs> <laughs> That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Woodell, who can be found at normwoodell.com. That's N-O-R-M-W-O-O-D-E-L.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And this podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Ashley Hargrave, 
I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera in your hot tub. We're back in an all-new podcast uh, segment next Wednesday, August 12th, when Matt Cummings debuts a brand new segment, plus more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more birthing dolphins. Join us then.